Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. We invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John as we continue our study through this wonderful book. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. There John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here. And go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of Him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and 
you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. As we heard a week ago, we pray now that every single heart present here, this moment, would be taught by God. Would you please give your spirit to bring the truth of your word to bear upon our hearts for our joy in Christ and for your glory through us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of uh, our beloved students reminded me this week of a prevailing worldview uh, today expressed as, I'm just kind of living my own truth. Just kind of living my truth. Uh, We used to say, you do you, and I'll do me. Now it's, I'm living my truth. And it is a worldview. But as Christians, we're concerned not just that people have a worldview, but that that worldview be true. You see, we've all been brought by divine grace to see the reality of divine truth. Uh, to believe that God is, and that He defines reality. But even where this grace is not, it's unbecoming of uniquely intellectual creatures uh, to be so careless with reality, right? To be aware of competing truth claims, uh, to be aware of mutually exclusive ways of viewing the world and care only for getting your way, truth be darned. That's not progressive, that's regressive. It's intellectually dishonest, it's morally bankrupt, it's virally unkind, it is inhumane, but it's not to be unexpected. It's not to be unexpected. It's cloak and dagger for something else at the root of the soul, and that is the coddling of sin and unbelief, which manifests itself as self-serving authoritarianism. I'm just living my truth. Is really just, God is not God. I am. And if you get in my way, judgment. I don't like you very much. Especially if God's Christ is the obstacle. Sin has greatly impaired our ability to discern the truth about the truth who defines reality. And still, as we come to our text this morning, Jesus lays responsibility upon us. He says that we all must judge of Him with right judgment. Nothing is more critical for life and eternity than believing that Jesus really is the Holy One of God. And we'll come at it this morning by considering two wrong judgments, which are really stemming from one great sin-driven commitment, I am my own Savior. 
I am my own Savior. That is, if I am to believe in Jesus, far from being the Christ He is, which is the Christ I really do need, He must be the Christ I want. The Christ that I would be. So here we go. Wrong judgment number one. In verses one to nine. It's this, that the Christ should be about worldly popularity. This is the judgment of his flesh and blood siblings. John brings us into the nuclear family circle of Jesus, and they have their own opinions about what he should be about if he is, in fact, the Christ. They have sort of a marketing strategy for him in verses 2 through 4, and it goes something like this. Brother, if you are the Christ, you need to get out of the backwoods of Galilee And you need to show yourself to the world. And it's almost like they pull out the calendar here and they say, hey, what do you know? The Feast of Booths is at hand. It's starting up and the whole world is going to be traveling to Jerusalem. And we're just saying, what an opportunity to improve your self-image. To regain some of the steam that you have lost recently. So just listen to us now. Some of your disciples If you are here a week ago, you remember this. They've left you. Some of your disciples have left you. It's not a very good look. So, here's the solution. Lay aside your words. Ease up on the teaching. It's too hard. If you want to reclaim them and make an even broader name for yourself, de-emphasize your mouth. Focus on the miracles and go big or go home. Right? Put up or shut up, although preferably both. And be the people's Messiah. Give them what they want and then you'll get what you want. But is that what the Christ wants? Or is it what they would want if they were the Christ? Make no mistake, Jesus did come into the world to win a lot of people. So there is something tantalizing, even tempting in their counsel here. It's just that Jesus came to win that great multitude to God. To save their souls in the way that God ordained Him to go about it. But so His siblings have no mind to that at all. Which makes it troubling that many today see no trouble in their counsel. What I mean is, many churches and Christians adhere to their two-sided campaign of damage control and worldly popularity. Even if well-intentioned, how often have we sought to take the rough edges off of Jesus? How often have we silenced all talk of sin? How often have we de-emphasized His Word, thinking people will like this, whatever it is, better? That will be more appealing to them. How often have we tried to style Jesus in a way that may draw a crowd, only to harden hearts? 
How often have we in our own minds counseled him? I know I have. Lord, why did you have to do this and not that and say that and not this? It makes our ministry a whole lot tougher. (laughs) I might ask, how often have we feared man? How often have we been afraid to stand with Jesus in all of his soul-piercing truth? How often have we mistrusted His way of making disciples? How often have we catered ministry to the wants of people instead of their needs? Their real needs. How often have we adopted, listen, an unbelieving brand of promoting Jesus? You see this in verse 5? John connects their counsel for his promotion, to their unbelief. Not even his brothers believed in him. So, if their counsel seems fine to us, we need to check our pulse. Are we alive to God? And if so, are we near that beating heart of Jesus? Friends, their counsel is really just the repackaging of the devil's tricks. I don't know if you remember this from the temptation narrative, but hey Jesus, go stand on the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, the heights of the world, and throw yourself off. Fly for all to see if you are the Christ. Worldly popularity. But no. Because He is the Christ, Jesus only does what He sees His Father doing. He's about obedience to God. Whatever that demands, we're going to come to find out. Just ahead of that, let me just say uh, how astounding it is in a variety of ways that Scripture, you ever thought of this? Scripture records how His own siblings were, at this point, unbelievers. Indeed, then, as we heard last week, when it comes to true faith, the flesh really is of no help at all. These are Mary and Joseph's kids. (laughs) Good and believing parents. And they've they've had a, a front row seat and full access passes to Jesus as their very own brother, and they do not yet believe in Him. They don't know who their brother really is. This is 30 years in. That's how light eliminating sin is. That's how necessary the new birth is. They may be from the same womb as Jesus. Think about that. But they must be born again. Same as any of us. Just a reminder then how dependent we all are and must be upon that grace of God. Maybe you say, I don't know. If those closest to Him did not believe in Him, shouldn't that kind of dissuade me? No, is the quick answer. 
Taken on the whole, just the opposite. If it could be misconstrued as damning of Jesus, why would John record it? Well, he records it because, in point of fact, it's true. And the Bible deals in truth. If anything, this admission should only gain your trust in everything else that John has to say about Jesus. Their unbelief betrays no problem with Jesus. It betrays a problem about them and about us. A problem, moreover, that eventually comes to be solved. His siblings, you may know this, they do eventually come to believe in Him. And this proves the truth of Christ even more because their faith comes in full view of what? His death and His resurrection. And so they go from a Christ of the world to a Christ of the cross. They go from rejecting their brother to calling him as James and Jude will, their Lord and their Savior and their Christ and their God. <laughs> How does that happen? It's very simple. They saw him who was crucified raised from the dead. They really did. It's true. And they were born again. And they believed it. Back to it then. We see how Jesus responds to their unbelieving counsel at this point in time in verses 6-8. through eight. He says, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are what? Let's say it together. Its works are evil. That's what he says. You guys can go on up to the feast. I'm not going up. At least I'm not going up according to your marketing strategy. I'm not going up according to your plan. Now because he will go up, it's important we see there that there is a plan by which he operates. His hanging back for a bit isn't him being irresolute or uncertain or wishy-washy. Again, just to the contrary. It's him being resolute, him being sovereign, him being in control, him being determined to go as the Father wills him to go. And typically that means Jesus doesn't do what people want him to do. <laughs> he doesn't do what people uh, expect that he should do. He does what God wants him to do. He takes his marching orders from God. He's God's Christ. And what that mainly means for him in practice is twofold. It means that he came to expose us for our salvation as sinners. As world-entranced evildoers. And to then reveal Himself as the Savior from God by way of what we call the cross of Christ. So it is to expose us as sinners and then to reveal Himself as the Savior of sinners. And until we are born again, Jesus says we hate Him for it. You see that in verse 7? Christ in no way came to win a worldly popularity. 
Jesus did not come. He did not live to be a fan favorite of the unconverted. He came to stifle, absolutely stifle, our truths. God sent him and he came as a matter of obedience to him to accept the full consequence of revealing God's truth about you and me. That he would be despised and then rejected and then what? He would be finally crucified. And it is a straight up marvel of God's merciful plan that his cross by way of our hatred would be the eternal means of our salvation. Listen, folks. Jesus will show himself to the world, all right? Only outside the gates of Jerusalem. Nailed to a cross of wood. That was our Lord's grand stage. That was the way of God's Christ and It will be the way then of Christ's people also, and we really need to hear this. Are we going outside the gate with Jesus? Are we ready to be fools for Christ? Are we rejoicing to share in His sufferings? Are we wanting to be liked by men or are we, as Paul says, crucified with Christ so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me? Decide again this hour. It will remake your life. Believe it. Jesus says... If you were of the world, if you lived by its thoughts and its commitments and its ways, went with the grain of sin, the world would love you as its very own. But you are not of the world any longer. I have chosen you out of the world. Thus, the world will hate you. A servant is not greater than his master. So, who is our Functional master. Dear ones, is it the world or is it Jesus? Wrong judgment number one. The Christ should be about worldly popularity. Let's judge with right judgment there. Let's take up our crosses, always on the front end of his call to discipleship. (laughs) Let's take up our crosses. Be holy, expose sin, and preach Christ crucified right into it. Wrong judgment number two. God's Christ will be obvious to worldly people. Isn't this what we think? I mean, I get it, so why don't they? (laughs) He's so obviously the Savior of sinners, and we forget We didn't get it at all until we did. It's easy to forget that vital ingredient called grace, that vital work of the Holy Spirit that we call again regeneration or the new birth. That as with Christ's brothers, He can be all around us and yet not be apparent to us. 
that He can be on full display to all of our senses. Maybe even this hour. He can be on full display to all our senses and still our souls have no true sense of Him at all. So here, we see Jesus does go up at God's time and we see in verses 11 to 12 that it is the matter of His identity that's swirling in the air in Jerusalem. Some here say He's a good man. Others say He's a deceiver. He's leading the people astray. And still others in authority find Him so reprehensible they want to remove Him from the earth entirely. It's a, it's a wide open range of unbelieving human opinions. And it is worth noting, verse 13, that all this was kept close to the vest. Do you see it there? It's all kept close to the vest. Heaven forbid it get out to the religious leaders that some people think Jesus is a good man. And we're to find in it the absence of what fills the hearts of real believers. That whereas true disciples publicly confess, you remember again a week ago, they publicly confess, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. These have other treasures to protect by way of privacy. Close to the vest. Being of the world, they love their lives more. They love their lives more than what publicity for Jesus can and will demand of them. They would rather be cozy than converted. They would rather be curious than Christian. They would rather be settled than saved. I'm not saying this how they would articulate it, but it is so very much the truth. And about that truth, Jesus decides to bring it, you see, starting in verse 14, and this is so very vital, something as a church upon which we must stand and never falter, that insofar as we hold to the Word of God, it is not mere opinions that we hold. The world has opinions. And okay, to be fair, we do too. But Christ does not. Christ has truth. Christ is truth. In Him there is how much falsehood? Zero. And our whole task then is to bring every one of our opinions, every one of our thoughts, captive to the Word of God. It's to humbly submit our opinions to divine revelation. And so Jesus takes to the temple and He begins to reveal. He begins to teach. And it is all our duty to hear in the preaching of Him the very Word of God that would save and guide our souls. The Word that by irresistible love is meant to command, commandeer, the chief allegiance and reformation of our lives, which apparently involves much more than merely marveling at it. Oh, he's such an incredible teacher. That's what they do in verse 15. They marvel at his words. 
They hear the teaching of Christ, but however they marveled, the end result was not what we want it to be. It's not repentance. It's not faith in Christ. It was more unbelief led along by a worldly commitment to mere appearances. This man has never studied in one of our fine rabbinical establishments. He's never sat under Gamaliel, for instance. How then is it that he has such learning? One thing to know is these were very skeptical of those who taught on their own terms. Right? It was understood that trained teachers of the law would have spent years in certain rabbinical schools and that they would then appeal to past rabbinical teaching for the authority of their own teaching. In fact, if you didn't do that, you could be perceived as rather arrogant. And one does wonder if that's not a bit of what's at play here. Regardless, what we know is that Jesus, without a seminary degree, could more than hold his own in teaching the Bible. The question they ask, the marvel they express, proves that his ability to handle the Word of God absolutely confounded them. Sadly, it also continues to expose their unbelief. Friends, we need to hear this. Jesus does not teach for His words to be heard, intellectually processed, and debated at arm's length from the heart. Jesus teaches for His words to be heard, loved, and obeyed from the heart. And so it's critical we see how Jesus responds to their questioning marvel. They are curious about His competence to speak as He does. He, on the other hand, is burdened for their competence to hear as they don't. He says, okay, you want my rabbinical license? You want to know my rabbinical school? You want to know the root of my authority? Here it is. My teaching also is not mine only, but His who sent me. If anyone's will, verse 17, is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and in him there is no falsehood. Completely trustworthy. And so, Jesus quite clearly claims that his teaching is divine. He is uniquely learned in the school of God. He's been commissioned by God to exposit God for the glory of God. To make Him known, not speculatively, but supremely. Not abashedly, but authoritatively. Not as hearsay, but as the Holy One of God. You see, 
It is not just that what He says is true. He Himself is true. He Himself is inerrant. He Himself is without error, that is. In doctrine and in His life. His exposition of truth, of God, of God's will, is absolutely pristine. Perfect. The Word of God. No one else like Him. A sidebar, if I may, on teaching and preaching. No one speaks as Christ did. Not any prophet before Him, nor any person after Him. And yet, Jesus lays down a principle that we cannot afford to ignore. Our teaching will only be as steadfast and true to God as our aim is steadfast and true to God. Motive does matter. Content does too, absolutely. Content does too. But in the end, motive will ultimately be the driver of the content over the years. Right? You don't think one's concern for their own popularity and praise will determine how and what they preach. No. I assure you it will. It will. And I assure you that we see this in the Bible as well as all around us today. If a man's motive isn't the glory of God, he will be far more likely to go off script to save face with men and women and win an audience for himself. And just there, as men sort of tap dance upon the text of Scripture, instead of diving into the text of Scripture to draw out the text of Scripture, that man's aim is typically revealed. And we can be reasonably skeptical that it is the glory of God. So again, we always need to hear as the days go by, that we need to be careful to accumulate for ourselves teachers that best as they can articulate it, have a stated and obvious commitment to the Word of God, to the glory of God. That's what's going to hold them fast. Now, Jesus far more than obviously has that kind of motive. So, here's the question. Why isn't it just that obvious to us who Jesus is? And that we should believe Him. Why may we wrestle so much with His words? Why may you rebuff at the call to submit your own opinions to Him who is true? One of two reasons. Believing divine revelation demands divine regeneration. The new birth. You will not believe it without it. That's one. And two, divine regeneration, new birth, deals not just in ears that hear, but in hearts and wills that love to do God's will. There it is. 
In other words, His teaching and He Himself may not be so obvious to us because we are either unregenerate and need to be born again. Or, having been born again, we need to repent of our nominalism. Of putting the whole of our Christianity in our hearing. Like right now. And not in our doing of what we have heard. Putting the whole of our Christianity in our appearances and not in our applications. Putting the whole of our Christianity in our lip service and not in a life being lived to God. You see this in the text? Again, verse 17. What does he say? He says, if anyone's will is to what? What does Jesus say? If anyone's will is to do God's will, I will make sense to them. (laughs) Jesus will make sense. Like no other. He will always ring true to your hearts. So why isn't He? Why mightn't He be? Because their will is not to do God's will. It's that simple. They can be trained in the Bible all they want. But everything in them, explicit or not, public or private, wants nothing to do with submitting their hearts to it. That's why we get verse 19. Jesus looks at them and He says, You have the law. Praise God. So what? None of you Keeps it. None of you keeps it. And that's going to be chiefly expressed when, in a little bit, you are all going to want to crucify me. So, what has he said? He said, having a Bible in your lap right now does not prove that you're a child of God any more than having the law in their laps, proved them to be the children of God. They had the law. And they wanted to kill the Christ that the law promised to them. Because that's what sin convinces sinners to do. Sin cannot live as it wants where the Savior lives as He wants. And so, He's got to die. We've got to kill Him. It's either Him or it. And it will always be Him until a person again is born again. And that is why we must be. What proves us a child of God, what proves us to be an heir of truth, is love for Christ manifest in obedience to all His Word. That is the fruit of the new birth. Without it, without it, sin is the thing that reigns in us. With all authority, it teaches us, whatever it must, that we are not so sinful Not so far from God, 
Not so condemned where we stand. Not so lifeless we cannot be self-righteous. Not so spiritually dead. It teaches us whatever it must, all in an effort to do one thing. And you need to hear that one thing. That one thing is to obscure Christ from your hearts. To block Him out. To keep your hearts at bay and in the dark. Even to hate Him. To be incensed with Him. To be so angry with Him, you'll kill Him. Dear ones, saved or not, our sin forged the cross of Christ. Our DNA too can be found on the hammer and the nails. And why? Again. Because we do not like to be exposed for what we truly are. We will fight like Hades to not be exposed. To admit we need this Savior. Why isn't Christ obvious to us? Because we are not so obvious to ourselves. <laughs> if we really knew that we were sinners, if we really knew that, we would sprint to Jesus. No hesitation. But you see, as it is, as we are, He calls folks out as sinners here to save them. And what do folks do? Verse 21. They demonize Him for it. You're a crazy person, Jesus. People are seeking to kill you? Who? You. That's it. How Jesus does know people better than they know themselves. Little do we know the true evil of sin. The true depths of our own depravity. What seems so very far away from us, murdering God. No way! I would never do that. Jesus knows to be well within the capacity of our fallen natures. And not just in theory. Not just in theory, but as we now know, as a fact of history. Beloved, count on it. Count on it. We see it all the time. You know. You stand for truth. You expose sin. You call upon souls to repent, to forfeit the world, to flee to Christ, to believe the gospel of grace. If it is not first believed, you will be demonized for it. So how should we respond? In kind no, we should respond as Christ. Understanding their spiritual condition, we must endure demonization if only to make an appeal to their consciences as people. 
once more. We cannot argue people into the truth. But we can, as Paul says, make our appeal to them with desires for their conversion. We can make appeals to them as human beings in the hope of God's converting power. And that is what Jesus does here. He uses a whole lot of words in verses 21 to 23 to say this. Folks, I am the goal of the law. I am the goal of the law that you profess to uphold, but don't in any way. Your enmity, even if expected, is still irrational. (laughs) He refers back to his healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. And he says, you guys have two laws. One concerning circumcision, one concerning the Sabbath. Let's just say that those two things come into conflict. Let's say that a young boy is born and his circumcision lands by law on the Sabbath. Do you postpone the circumcision because it's on the Sabbath? Do you not do what's beneficial for a little bit of the body? And Lord willing, all of the soul on the Sabbath? Of course you do. And he's like, folks, the Sabbath exists for that kind of thing. Acts of mercy are not to be withheld on the Sabbath. They aren't even to be exceptional on the Sabbath. They're supposed to be central to the Sabbath. So, why are you angry with me for fulfilling the Sabbath by making a man's whole body well? Come on now. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So there it is. All of that has led to this. Judge of Jesus with right judgment. Friend, it's an appeal from Jesus to your God-given sense, however calloused, however biased, however dead, of what is right and true. Jesus is obviously the Christ. He is obviously the Holy One of God to all with hearts to see it. Don't judge Him by mere appearances. Give no credence to the crowds, whatever they're saying. Who cares? Give no credence to human opinions. Give no credence to your own opinion. Give no credence to peer pressure, to feel-good teaching. Give no credence to the lies of self-righteousness. Judge with right judgment. If you would do God's will, if you would pursue His glory, if you would walk in the truth, if you would be saved from sin by grace for glory, you will repent and believe in Christ crucified and then raised from the dead. You'll see that your truth is a lie. That you are no savior for yourself. And that that's okay. That really is okay. Because Jesus is the savior that you need. Beloved, how are we doing at proving the obvious? 
To the oblivious, yes, but also to one another, even as to ourselves. I think again of last week. You recall the stance of a God-given faith? Christ had given the word of the cross to that great crowd. And where 99% of them, remember you started with like maybe 20,000 people, and at the end you got 12, and one of them is a devil. (laughs) Okay? Where 99% could not endure the word of the cross. And the door then to abandon ship was opened wide to his own disciples. Where did they land? Where did his true disciples land? Again, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are what? The Holy One of God. What a blessed contrast with all the world. Are we that stark? Are we that stark? Are we giving such honor to Jesus and such honor to His Word? And is that manifest in our lives? Are we loving and walking in the truth? Are we viewing everything through the lens of Christ and Him crucified? Well, let's take it home with us. Let's take it home with us. And may the Lord bring it home to our hearts. Let's pray. We thank you so much for your word. We do pray that you would bring it home. You would change us, save us, sanctify us. We ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.